Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Um, We are in a study of the book of Exodus, and uh, it's entitled, Are We There Yet? And last week we talked about leaving Egypt and how children of Egypt, or children of Israel rather, um, they may have left Egypt, but a lot of Egypt had not left them. And there were things they had to process and change in their minds even to be able to reach that point. This week I want to talk to you about encountering the holy. I'm going to ask you if you would, we haven't done this for a while, if you'd stand for the reading of the word please today. And um, I'm going to read you out of John chapter 8. Verses 53 and 58, we're talking about Exodus. Why are we going into the book of John? Well, let's see about that. Are you greater than our father Abraham? They're talking to Jesus. He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, who you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and I obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not 50 years old, they said to him, and you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Father, I pray that you anoint your word and our ears and our hearts and minds to receive, I pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What does this passage have to do with a study in Exodus? I'm glad you asked. Um, I want to, before even going into any further, read another section. It won't be on the screens for you. Um, It is again also in the New Testament. It is found in Acts chapter 7, and it's basically a summarization of the passages that we'll be looking at here today. Stephen's speaking at the time of his uh, persecution And says this, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then, and he's quoting from the scripture, then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so they would die, specifically throw them in the river Nile, where they'd either drown or be snapped up by crocodiles. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his people. When he was placed outside, in the river actually, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as, his own, as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful, interesting enough, in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian, the first indicator of a lifelong issue Moses struggled with of anger and self-control. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they didn't. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? 
But the man, man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Judge also can be translated as deliverer over us. Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. He went over to get a closer look. He heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning. I have come down to set them free. Now come, and I will send you back to Egypt. I've read both of those sections. The first one, as we go along, you'll understand, I think, why uh, it links. This, though, is a summarization of what we're looking at. Both of these are found in the New Testament. Now, this is just strictly an aside for the moment here, really. But I think it's important for you to understand. Because there's been some conversation in recent years that has started to spread through Christian circles. Much of it led by a very prominent, very prominent, and someone I would have had a great respect for in the past, a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia. And the concept goes like this. At one point being said that we must, um, we should unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. There's so many problematic that can be a stumbling block to those seeking the Lord. Let's just not get into that. Let's just focus on only the New Testament. And then recently the statement has been that really the Scripture as a whole is not as important really as is the resurrection and death of Christ, things like this. Let's not even apply the Scripture necessarily on this issue. We need to focus on this. Both of those trends are deeply disturbing and wrong. What you just saw in this passage here is that Jesus, as well as the disciples, other writers in the New Testament, constantly reference the Old Testament. In no way did they delink the Old Testament from the New Testament. And as far as taking the entire Scripture and saying that's a stumbling block in some way, let's just focus on, we don't even know what to focus on without the Scripture. The Scripture stands. And the Word of God is the Word of God. And it is something that should never be set aside, but certainly should not be picked and parceled across by these two. These are integrally linked together. And if there are problems, and it's oftentimes because we don't understand some of the things that are taking place as far as the Old Testament is concerned. So that's just one aside, but that's not the purpose. The purpose was to you see this integration and to dive into where we're at now and hopefully understand John chapter 8 and what Jesus is doing there by the time we're done. Moses is born at a time when all the Israelite males are supposed to be executed by being tossed into, at the time of birth, tossed in the river, Nile. The Nile, would have, they would have drowned, or like I said, crocodiles, 30 feet long in some cases. I mean, these are monster beasts, beasts would have devoured them and killed them. Somehow, because of planning by God and also his parents, he survives. They don't carry that out. They hide him for three months. After three months, it gets to be an issue. They know they have to do something. So in a way, his mom actually obeys Pharaoh. He, she puts him in the river, but just not unprotected. She puts him in a little boat made of papyrus probably and, and tarred on the outside to make it somewhat waterproofing. It would not have been a large item. It's referred to as an ark, and the only other time you see that language used is Noah's ark. It's the same language, a place of protection and refuge that's supposed to float in a body of water. Wouldn't have been all that large, though, and I think God still would have protected because, as I said, these beasts were huge, and so he wouldn't have drowned, but I'm sure they would have tipped and devoured this thing as a, as a quick snack 
uh, on the way. But somehow he's provided for by God's grace. So as it goes along, um, she, he ends up floating into an area where uh, the, the princess of Egypt sees that, takes him along, wants to adopt him. Adoption was not uncommon, especially in the upper levels a lot of time. And it appears that this person did not have a child, and so they're going to adopt. Uh, Julius Caesar adopted Caesar Augustus. That's how he becomes Caesar Augustus. Adoption wasn't uncommon. Uh, at the same time, she can't nurse him. Um, and one thing that should be noted is Moses was not only not an only child, he wasn't the eldest. A little unusual again, because usually things go to the eldest. But he was at least three down because we know Miriam and Aaron, uh, brother and sister, were older than him. Miriam had shouted along. When there's a need for a nurse, she pops up and then offers her mother. So the mother actually gives, is able to nurse her own son and have some care for him for some season of time. It could have been a year, could have been two years possibly um, at that time period. So there was some imprinting that was permitted. After that, he goes into the house of Pharaoh. And uh, I, I mean, we've all seen Prince of Egypt, so we know how the story goes, right? Okay. Um, and there are some accurate parts to that. There are some inaccurate parts to that. Um, one of the things is they portray him there as a 20-some-year-old person at that time. The reality is, is he is steeped in the ways of Egypt. He becomes a young man. He is 40 years old at the time that his life drastically changes. Josephus, another historian, a Jewish historian, um, writes that Moses was actually the heir to the throne of Egypt, and that while he was a young man, he actually led the armies of Egypt in a victorious battle against the Ethiopians. And so either way, at age 40, Moses would have been somebody who would have already served in the military, probably had executed uh, victories at that point of time. He would have been steeped in the knowledge and understanding of the elite society of that time, of that culture, not just its education, but the cultural norms that would have come with it. And we discussed that a bit last week, and the cultural norms that we all fall into in this society that we're supposed to come out from or step away from. In this time, he would have been educated in geography, history, grammar, writing, literature, philosophy, music. All of this would have been his. He would have slept on, uh, on, on, on tremendously comfortable things. I don't know if they would have had Egyptian cotton sheets in those days, but if so, he would have had them. But it would have been stretched out. He would have had all these things, but he would have also known somehow, either through his mother, his actual mother, or through other things, would have understood that these people who were in slavery, he was actually had some connection with. And so one day he's out, he sees an offense taking place, and the scripture says that he looked this way and that, and then proceeded with his action. There's some indicator he knew that what he was about to do wasn't right. There was a TikTok video I saw a little ways back of a golden retriever who's, who's running and catching something, and then as it's running on back, got caught in its leash and stumbled and rolls himself completely over, gets up and kind of looks left and right to see if anybody saw what he did. And, and it's kind of cute, but his case is just seeing if someone saw his mistake. In this case, he's looking beforehand. He knows what he's about to do is wrong, and he executes, he kills this person. In the Prince of Egypt uh, um, uh, musical, all it has him doing it publicly before everybody. That's not what happened. This was private. This was two or three people. He thinks he's gotten away with it. He buries the guy in the sand. 
But the next day, he's again trying to exercise some degree of authority. It may be in his mind, he's thinking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in this elite position. I can be a ruler of these people too, or maybe I will be their liberator and I'm going to be special in some way. But they turn on him and say, who made you a prince and a judge? Who made you a ruler or a deliverer over us? Are you going to do what you did to us, what you did to the Egyptian? He realized, oh, this is known. And despite his position, this is a capital offense. And so he leaves. In his guilt, in his sin, the top culture of its time. Scripture tells us that he goes out to a, um, the land of Midian. The land of Midian uh, would have encompassed in those days um, the Sinai Desert, uh, that's now currently part of Egypt. It could have also extended on the other side of the Red Sea and into the, uh, um, the area that's currently Saudi Arabia. It was, it was and still is to this day an extremely stark and harsh environment. Uh, just a few pictures real quickly here I want to show you. If you look from here and uh, you see those little trails maybe you're standing, those are this is way up in the mountains. This is just a desolate area. You don't see anything constructed at all. And this is today, modern time. You go to the next picture here and you see this is very common, this type of tortured rock structures all over as far as you can see. Next slide real fast. Um, steep, harsh mountains. This is again from way up. Those are the trails way down below. And in the desert, when it becomes nightfall, the temperature can go from being very, very hot to being extremely cold. And, and in one way, there's a beauty to it out there, absolutely, because you can see the stars, you can see those things. Um, there can even be a sense maybe of being closer to God in some ways, but what mostly stands out is that sense of barrenness. And it's in this environment that he stumbles into at the age of 40. He goes to a well, and while he's at the well, some women come on by here um, with their flocks, and there's some guys there that make it rough for them and, and giving them a hassle. And so he uses his Egyptian skills, you know, and, and he fights them off or gets them to go away and helps the ladies out, waters things. Kind of interesting, one of the few times he would have been doing anything. First time maybe that he'd ever served in any way. The women go back to their father, whose name is Ruel, and later he's called Jethro. He's someone who's a priest of God. He knows God. And he says, wow, you're back a little early. Uh, how, what, what, what happened? And they said, well, this is what happened. This Egyptian guy helped us out. And he says, well, where is he at? Well, he's still there. He says, well, why is he still there? Because he's got a couple of daughters, and he's thinking if this guy's Egyptian, maybe he's good for a husband going forward a bit. And we can look at that and say, wait a minute, they keep calling him an Egyptian. How did they know that he was an Egyptian? How would they have known that Moses was an Egyptian? Well, obviously, he would have walked like one. <laughs> I mean, that's the first thing you learn, you know, is how to walk like an Egyptian when you're younger. He probably would have had, um, uh, could have had some jewelry, could have had clothing. Uh, Egyptians usually had shaved heads and uh, um, wigs, actually, they would have worn as a general rule. Um, makeup, other things that would have been partially, so they would have determined who he was. Well, he goes and he hangs out with them, and in time, he actually ends up um, marrying uh, the daughter of Raoul. And the daughter's name is Zipporah. She'll show up a little bit later, probably next week, if we have time for her. Zipporah's name is translated as warbler or sometimes as twitterer, like in a small bird, like twitterer. 
Um, and that's actually the case. She actually, her name would have meant Twitter. I think later it could have been changed to X, but I'm not sure. <laughs> that part's not so clear in the scripture. And so he's married and he has two sons. He names one of the sons that has the term of being an alien because he feels like he's an alien. He feels caught with his failure and he's out on what was referred to as the backside of the desert, this rough terrain and area. It's in that context that Raul Jethro becomes somewhat of a mentor to him he would have possibly and probably heard at that time for the first real time something of the things of God. And that's where we pick up the scripture. Because in Exodus chapter 3, he's out being a shepherd and he's called, but he's not called first, he sees something first. He's a shepherd and he sees a, a bush in the distance that is burning but not consumed. That was an unusuality. And it was probably a bramble bush of some type. And if you go to St. Catherine's Monastery, the oldest monastery in the world, I think it's established like 400 or so at the foot of Mount Sinai or Jebel Musa in Sinai, um, you can go there and the monks will show you the original burning bush. It's still in existence after 3,000 years and has stayed alive all this time without any watering. And I'm absolutely convinced it's actually the original one because monks, they, they would never lie. So... You can go and see that. I doubt that's the case. The bush didn't matter. It wasn't the bush. It was something that was present at that point in time, an illumination, a presence of God. And so he sees this from the distance, and he could have just gone on his way, or he could have just said, well, that's weird, or, or a lot of different options happen. But it says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 3, that Moses thought, I will go over there and see this strange bush, this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. I will go over there. An interesting thing here, and I'm not the first to note this. I will go over, and then verse 4, when the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Interesting connection point. He says, I'm going to go over. What if he had not? It was when he decides to go over and starts that, then the Lord sees this, and that's when he calls him over and calls to him. I want to offer to you the idea that there are moments in our life, and while I don't think this is a common occurrence as far as the things are concerned, certainly this wasn't, that there are moments that God may light up something around us draw our attention to it in a moment of his holiness or presence or, 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 or so, and if we fail to respond to that, that we may miss out on a moment, that we could lose that opportunity. What I'm going to share with you next I don't think is common. I think it's unusual, and, and we could critique it in a number of different ways, but, but it's something that's never lost my mind. Um, years ago when I was on staff here and, uh, and served uh, the lead pastor at that time, my father, we went up to, um, the, the staff would go up to Traverse City uh, in the wintertime once a year for a conference that the uh, denomination we were part of at that time would offer. It was the only one that was really good because you could dress casually without suit and tie. And it was the Traver Grand Traverse Resort. And so they had sessions, but you could also relax afterwards a bit. And there was a guy named Des Evans. Des was a pastor from uh, Texas that I knew of by some mutual friends. He was a Welshman, really great guy. 
And so I had talked to him. I met him when he was there as a speaker and talked a little bit. I was in the session where he taught, and then it went into an extended period of worship afterwards, and I exited out. I don't recall why I exited out. Um, it's entirely possible that I thought that if I got a little bit quicker to the hot tub that it wouldn't be as packed out, perhaps. I don't know. I don't recall. I just recall that I wasn't there for what transpired a little bit later in the worship time afterwards. Des, at one point in time, um, had a word of the Lord for several people, a prophetic word. It was something in those times, I think that's uncommon, but I do think there are moments when God speaks in that way, not extra biblical, but in a way that's just speaking to a life in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And evidently he referenced me, not by name, but enough that my father knew it was me. And obviously I did not come forward at that time or raise up to say, yeah, what's happening here and stuff. And so when he tells me this later, I'm like, well, I'm always interested to hear. I mean, who's not interested to hear if God's going to specific word for you? So I caught him the next day, I think it was your leader, even that night maybe with Des. And I said, hey, I heard, you know, so what, what you got for me? What is, what is God saying? He says, don't know. What do you mean? He says, you weren't there. And he wasn't playing games with me. It was just that, that, that he, he felt called to say something and to direct that. And when I wasn't there, then that element did not pass through. Now, again, that's uncommon. We can criticize that, all sorts of things. I'm not saying that as a, as a game plan or as a common element. But it was something that arrested in my mind that sometimes we rush away too fast in a moment. And that can be in a service sometimes. We're not trained any longer as a people to be in the presence of God. Oh, too often we treat things like this, like an intellectual discussion and conversation that we take in, we process, and then we go out and it's all a, a intellectual transaction. But I want to offer to you the fact that when we are gathered, God is present. That when we worship Him, He's present. That there can be times in there when God's really trying to catch our attention and light something up and we're too quick to walk away and to leave. In the upper room, they stayed, and they waited upon the Lord. Now, please feel relieved. When the service ends here today, we're not going to be sitting up here and counting who's staying and who's not. I'm not tracking you back home in your car or anything of that nature. And there are kids that have to be picked up, and the children's workers really want you to pick those children up. Okay, so there's all responsibilities we have. This is not a judgmental issue or a criticism or setting up any dynamic. But we see here in this moment that he turns aside when God draws attention. And when he does that, God calls and there's an interaction that occurs. And I want to suggest to you that there are times even in this service or there are times in your life or when you're driving or when you're dealing with your children or your spouse when God may light up a bush near you and you need to turn aside and wait upon him there. And in that moment, you might have an exchange that you would otherwise miss in a quick conversation or a quick drive-by. Certainly it was for Moses. And so he goes and is engaging. And at one point in time, uh, in Exodus 3, verses 5 and 6, God says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place you're standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and, and, and of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he's afraid to look at God. What's the deal with taking off the sandals? Why are my feet more holy than the sandals? In those days, you would have collected, as we've said many times, a lot of pollutants around as you're walking around. Um, that, that the idea was when you go into a house, in fact, how many of you have ever been to a house or you have a house where you go into there and you take your shoes off when you enter the house? Okay, a lot of people do that nowadays. Okay? 
Um, and part of it is they're trying to maintain what's there. Part of it is the idea that you're carrying in something possibly and, and uncleanness. It's the same thing. And so to take off the shoes was to recognize the pollutant of sin that has gathered with us that we walk in every day and to set that aside and in that way come in with at least that element removed for the moment. So he's on holy ground. He's to remove those sandals. And he hides his face. Why does he hide his face? Why is he so afraid? He's facing God. He's encountering the holy, completely pure, completely without sin. And Moses, we forget, is a murderer. He's, he's someone who has done some pretty raw things. And that weighs on him still. You just see him for these 40 years, just kind of the, the whole sense of how he names his kids and everything else is just kind of weighty. So he hides his face. And then in Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Because God has now laid this charge on him that you are going to be the rescuer. You are going to be the deliverer. I want you to go back to Pharaoh. But who am I to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He had his own plan, and it was a good plan at the time, but it was not what God had planned. He was going to go from his perch of invulnerability as a prince and all the connections, all the things he could have possibly leveraged there all that's past now. Now it's just him and the only power that's going to be in him is from God. How do I do this? God says in verse 12, I will be with you. And that almost should have a slash after I will be because I will be is another variation of I am. So I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who sent you when you brought the people out of Egypt. You'll worship God on this mountain. You're going to come on this mountain and worship here. Mount Sinai. This is a precursor to what takes place next. Verses 13 and 14, Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. I am has sent you. There is no equivalent to God. There is no one that is his equal. And in this statement, he's saying really two things. One is that he's self-existent. There's no equal to it. I am that I am. If you were to put God in an equation and have God in an equal sign, there's absolutely nothing you can put on the other side of that equal sign other than God himself. There is no equal. And this is what he's saying in this moment of time. I am that I am. There is nothing that equivalates to it. I don't have to define myself any longer in any other way. It is what it is. It is who he is. The Israelites from that time forward would have even used the phrase he is to emphasize something of the nature of who God is. But it goes even deeper than that because in making that statement, that he is present with them, that he's not going anywhere, that he is present in the moment of time with them. I am who I am. And with the statement before, I will be with you. It's not just a statement of self-existence. It's a statement that he will be present with the people and with specifically um, Moses in this time and place. So, if we look at what has just been said in this whole passage of session, or, or, or passages of Scripture, and now we go back to John chapter 8 
we are now going to have some context for what was said. Let me give you that context as to why Jesus said that in chapter 8, verses 53 and 58. Prior to that statement that he makes is this. Chapter 8, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. He's bringing a freedom statement in here. Well, they answered, and we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we'll be set free? I mean, maybe back in Egypt's time there was time, but we have never been slaves, and we're implying that we're slaves if we need to be set free. The only time we've ever been slaves was Egypt. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Their brain is already over in Egypt. And Jesus is linking what he's doing now as a spiritual freedom in the same way that Moses was to give a physical freedom that he is now the proper ruler and proper judge. And in the same way that Moses left the palace and all the trappings to go into the desert to abandon all that and come down and work and serve ultimately in the same way Christ has come from heaven to come and serve. In the same way that, that Moses was rejected, who, who made you a ruler or a deliverer or judge over us? In the same way Jesus was rejected as a ruler and as a deliverer over us. And he's injecting this in this moment of time. And it's in this context of freedom from sin that all of us can identify with. And taking it back to Egypt and back to this time, it's in this context that we read the passage that we started with. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so do the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father whom you claim is your God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you've seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, what? He is going directly back to Exodus. He's saying, I am God. I am the one that frees from sin. I am the one that brings freedom from the oppression. I am Moses multiplied by a billion, 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 billion. And the issue of slavery is still very real for you. And it's still very real for us. And the people of that time knew it. It had been drilled into them who the I am is. And so when he made that statement, they knew it wasn't just a trick of language. They knew it was going directly and he was claiming to be God because the next verse says that they tried to kill him. They tried to kill him for blasphemy. When we look into the Scripture, when we see the holy, when there's something that, that is off to the side, do we see it or are we oblivious? There's another TikTok video I saw not long ago. It's just all I do all day long. <laughs> no, not really. I'm not sure it was TikTok. It was just one of those short videos I saw. But it was getting a little bit of speed because there was a wedding on a beach, a very beautiful ceremony, and they picked a beach, though, that was a little 
It was public, had people around. I don't think I would have picked that beach, but, but they'd marked out an area, they had the canopy, they had the whole deal, and they're going through the line, and now the maid of honor is ready to come, with, or the, the, the bride's ready to come with her dad. And, and there's a couple of people that are realizing as they're going onto the beach that, oh, this is happening, so I'm, I'm gonna stay back, I'm gonna wait until they're, they're past and they're, they're done. But there's one oblivious old lady, or maybe just one ornery old lady, I don't know which it was. She's like, and she walks right in front of the bride, cuts right through the whole process, and, and I think people try to draw our attention and, and all to it, but, and people were ragging on it, saying, well, you know, it's a public beach, they shouldn't have cared. Others are saying, going, just wait, just have a little respect. Are you aware of the fact that there's a sacred ceremony going on? Are we so caught up with what surrounds us that we don't observe the sacred? Is it possible that God is lighting up issues? Whether it's in a service like this or whether it's in your home or in a moment of quietness or even as you're driving, that God's lighting up something there that's of his presence to draw your attention to a moment of his holiness, a moment of encounter, a moment that could transform and change and we're just too busy, too wrapped up, too caught with the secular to even see that moment. And so we lose it. Moses pulled aside, and when God saw he pulled aside, he called out to him, and there was an exchange that transformed his life at the age of 80. He encountered the holy, and it blew him away. He hid his face because he was aware of his own sin, his own brokenness. And yet God said, despite that, I'm raising you up, not the way you want to do it, the way I want it to be done not in your own power and might, not as a mighty prince of Egypt, but as a broken man of God. There's a lot more conversation that took place and we'll talk about that next week. But this morning, I leave you just with this. Have you ever really encountered the holy? Have you ever stopped what you're doing long enough to be overwhelmed by the presence of God? And when you have, have you have you meditated? Has it changed you? Do, you? do you look for that? Do you long for it when you have it? Does it break you? Or do we just ignore it? Pick up our stick and trudge out into the darkness. Encountering the holy. Are you or have you ever been there yet? Father, this morning we pause for just a few moments of time. I pray, Lord, way beyond anything I would have said that may have distracted someone today. And the power of your word and the presence of your Holy Spirit would, would draw us in to the place where we can hear you calling our name. That despite our desire to hide, which goes way back to Adam, that we would still come aside from our intended journey to encounter you and be transformed and changed by that, Father. So this morning, we pause. As you go into this week, I would encourage you to keep your eyes open. Is there something that God's drawing your attention to, something illuminating, something of a moment that he's having you to turn aside from whatever it is just to encounter him? Look for those moments. Uh, they may not be everyday occurrences, but they do happen. Father, this morning, um, I pray that you would let your word work deep within our heart and mind, that we not, not only recognize you as 
the self-existent one as I am, but also that you are the one who, who chooses and desires to be with us, present in our lives, not limited to a Sunday morning block of time or just to even to a devotional, but that you desire to be with us throughout what we're doing. Open our eyes, I pray, to see those moments to encounter you and respond. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.